Welcome everyone to Davos Fingers episode 46, For Onion's Sake, a.k.a. King's Blood is a Hell of a Drug, a.k.a. The Trial of the Century, a.k.a. The Fury of the Wild, a.k.a. They Shall Not Pass! Nice. I'm Scatty, and that's Brooke Clapping, and we also have Matt with us as always. And we will be bringing for you... <laughs> no hellos? Oh. Give give them! I, I waited! I thought my clap was like, hello! Oh, hi. <laughs> In case you guys wanted another hello, there's your hello. Uh, okay, we're doing the same thing we do every week, guys. It's not a surprise at this point. Five chapters, Davos 6, John 8, Arya 12, Tyrion 9, and Jaime 8, all from A Storm of Swords. That's chapter 63 to 67, according to a wiki of Ice and Fire. Uh, and always, we are spoiler-free until the end of the podcast, until Davos After Dark. That's where we get all spoilery and fun with uh, projections and theories and all sorts of other stuff. And uh, if you want to contact us, uh, we're getting a slew of emails and Twitters and everything. Uh, keep them coming, guys. We love it. Uh, I apologize for any derelictness on responding on time. I've been a little a little busy at work. But anyway, DavosFingers.com. We are DavosFingers at gmail.com, Twitter at DavosFingers, or on the Facebook. You can find us there and like us. Uh, so, I don't think we have any announcements this week to uh, to delay the start, so let's just dive right on in. That's Davos, and I think, Matt, that's you. Eyes are crying from the onions in the hold. Save steady boy, save steady boy. Finger bones in a bag mean the truth will be told. Steady devil. So it seems like a rather droll affair. Melisandre is leading a nighttime devotional around a huge bonfire. She chants something about Rolor being the sun. You are the rain, and I knew it all again and again. And then her fellow Rolorites and Queen's men chant something back. And they're led not inconspicuously by Stannis' wife, Selyse. Stannis is in attendance, but looks like he wants nothing more than to just GTFO and get back to what he does best, which is, as we know, brooding. So one notable absentee from the fireside is our namesake, Davos. Uh, noting that the chanting still has a while to go, he reaffirms that now is the time to do whatever it is he's going to do. We don't know, but he's nervous about doing something. So rounding up a handful of apparent accomplices, including Andrew Esterman, Louis the Fishwife, I had to bring that one up because that name is excellent, and others who were sure to forget as soon as this chapter's over, they head to the quarters of Maester Pylos. Remember him? He's that young maester who took old Crescent's place and is currently teaching Davos to read. Yeah, that guy. So running the risk of Melisandre somehow finding out what they're doing, Davos enters Pylos's quarters, where Pylos is studying away with young Edric Storm. Now, it's obvious that Pylos is also in on whatever the plot is, as he pretty much winks at Davos and tells Edric that they're done for the night and that he needs to go with Davos and co. The confused Edric obeys, and it's then we find out what's going down. Davos is putting his money where his mouth is, meaning that if Stannis won't spare Edric's life, and it's looking more and more like he won't, Davos will. So he puts him on a boat with Ser Andrew and a few other kingsmen that's headed across the narrow sea to the free cities of Essos. 
Yep, you heard that right. They're shipping Edric out, far from the burning love of Melisandre and the desperation of Uncle Stannis. So after seeing them safely off, Davos doesn't go and hide himself, as I would have considered, and he doesn't do what I actually would have done, which is waiting until everyone's like, wait, where did Edric go? And me being like, I don't know, I haven't seen him. That's what I would have done. But no, Davos marches himself right up to the chamber of the painted table to wait for his king to return. And Stannis arrives at the chamber uh, a short time later, Melisandre in tow, and they're talking about the big news that's on Westeros tonight and in all the tabloids. Joffrey's dead. Mel is like, see, the leech has worked. Give me Edric and I'll do the rest. And you can vividly see Stannis like grinding his teeth and almost relenting until Davos steps in and is like, actually... The whole Edric thing's not going to work out anymore. And then he straight up confesses everything that he'd just done. Uh, notably, Davos sees a flicker of dismay and uncertainty come across Melisandre's normally stoic face. But as for Stannis, well, he seems like he's almost just more pissed that Davos did something without telling him, first of all. Uh, he mentions treason, to which Davos replies that, dude, four of my kids died for you on the Blackwater. I'm like the epitome of loyal. Uh, in the words of Jim Craig, the, the famous goalie from the 1980 U.S. Olympic miracle hockey team, he basically says, I'm here, ain't I? So Stannis replies with the argument we've heard before that being a king isn't easy and hard decisions have to be made. And if killing one kid to save the world is what he has to do, it's what he's got to do. Melisandre chimes in saying that Edric won't be safe when the others are set loose. So Davos really isn't doing him any favors. Uh, so the argument continues uh, until Davos finally kneels down just as like, Okay, whatever, kneels down and asks Stannis to just listen to one more thing he's got to say. Just one. Stannis, who seemingly had it, draws his fake fire sword and tells him to say it quickly. And it's then that Davos just pulls out a small crinkled sheet of parchment and begins to read it. And that's where the chapter ends. So, what'd you think of, uh, of uh, Davos's move? Shipping Edric out, taking matters into his own hands. Uh, ballsy. Uh, Likey? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you, you called out uh, Garland being ballsy to Joff last week, and it was. Uh, this is this is way ballsier to me. Mm. And <laughs> uh, love it. Just, it's Davos. Th this, is, this is why we love Davos. He hangs on to his principles. His principles are sound and good. And he does what he thinks he needs to do. And, you know, he also thinks that in being loyal to Stannis, he also has to protect Stannis a little bit from himself. And, right. Uh, yeah. Loyalty is blind. He acts accordingly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He is a man with conviction for sure. What What would you guys have done in this case? One life for many. <sighs> it's a compelling argument, right? It, it really is. is. Mel's it's a side very especially. Argument. If you believe Mel mm -hmm. at all, it's like, look, we're all fucked unless we stop the others right. anyway. So, including Edric. Yeah, he is right, too. Right. Yeah. I, I don't know and, if I can answer the question. I, I, I would like to think to I'd do what Davos that, did, but Yeah. To add to that is Davos isn't just like seeing Melisandre at her nightly rituals and seeing her chanting stuff. He watched her birth a shadow baby. Yeah. 
he who watched her birth an assassin. So to your point about it being ballsy, that's super ballsy. Because yeah. he's seen what she is capable of doing, which no one else has. Nobody else has seen the type of stuff that Davos has seen in regards to Melisandre. He's in a, very, he's in a very, very weird spot. Because, like we just said, uh, even Edric is screwed if, if uh, you know, what Mel is saying will come to pass will come to pass and they don't stop them. And he's seen, like you said, seen the Shadow Baby. He's seen her power as an admission of the fact that he's afraid of her power. Half of this chapter, he's skulking around, talking to his guys like, yeah, I hope she doesn't see us doing this. You know, like, he, he genuinely thinks she has power, and yet at the same time is is balking at her commands. It's interesting. It's and, weird. It's like knowing there's a god and being like, yeah, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to still try to sneak around this. <laughs> the guys are like, well, let's just kill her then. He's like, no, 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 no. Can't do that. Can't yeah. do that. Not I've tried. It doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't bring that up to them, which I thought was interesting, because that would have like really shut the argument down if he'd yeah. been like, yeah, I already tried that. But Remember he doesn't. that one time I was in jail? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, what uh, happened there? Uh, well. <laughs> so yeah. I was... Oh, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I probably would have killed the kid. Like, you would have killed him? Well, it's just... It's it's a lot to put on the line for a 13-year-old I would, kid. I would not have it's liked it, really but is. you're right. We have evidence that she has... Like Stana said, we can count woman. <laughs> she predicted the three kings' deaths, and they came to be. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I would have just been like Stannis and like put my put my faith in in these these weird abilities that I can't quite understand which scares me but also I wish I had a Davos in my life <laughs> it's like yeah. helping me make better decisions like don't eat that next slice of pizza you're gonna regret it for <laughs> so many reasons and like just <laughs> whack it out of my hand <laughs> send it on yeah. a ship across the narrow sea yeah. that piece of pizza will not be eaten not on my watch. <laughs> yeah, there's got to be like a heartburn parallel in there somewhere, but I can't think of it right now. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. What were you gonna say, Matt? I was gonna say, speaking of ballsy, let's not forget these guys that participated with Davos, huh? Like, yeah, it almost feels <sighs> like they were they were looking for him. Well, they were looking for that leader. They were looking for yeah. Yeah. There, there was Some, like this mm-hmm. brewing. Uh, discontent, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And finally, a leader arose from the ashes, or something. I don't know, but it's <laughs> it's pretty cool that these guys—they're putting as much on the line as Davos. And, yeah, and that's crazy. So, one thing that I always would forget my first read through, and maybe even the second, was what is the difference between Kingsmen and Queensmen? Um, and so, I just wanted to remind listeners who might not remember as well it's it's more of actually a religious differentiation right the the king's men are the people that have kind of stuck to uh the the faith of the seven and the queen's men are the ones who followed queen Celise in worshiping uh relore along with melisandra well, so Florence. just a reminder yeah. that's what it is yeah a lot, the, all the all of Celise's family are pretty devout at this point it sounds like or they think they are. <clears throat> yeah. Yes, thank you for the reminder. Um, I wanted to point out uh, something 
that I found a little bit interesting. Um, th- throughout the time we've known Stannis, uh, kind of firsthand uh, since the second book started, his claim has always been a legal one. I am king because I am king. Legally, I am king because these children are bastards and legally I'm king. But he makes a different argument in this chapter. He actually says, um, another monster in the making, another leech upon the land. Westeros needs a man's hand, not a child's. He's actually he's actually started to make an argument that is not legal and is good of the realm based, which is, it's different for him, right? <laughs> That's true, and maybe that's because the whole legal thing hasn't worked to this point. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Whether He's it's... trying a different tact. Yeah, I don't know whether it, whether it's because it hasn't worked, and now he's grasping, or whether, or, or whether this is like another reason to him, right? Like, right. Not only legally, but this is what the country needs now, which is something that he yeah, just he never. Just... Idealistically, it's something that he would never reached for before because legal is legal, and I don't need any other reasons. Now yeah. it looks like, I don't know whether he's been corrupted is maybe not the right word, but he's thinking on different lines than he used to think, right? Mm. He's now thinking I wonder if about... it's just a natural progression, though. Could like, he, 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 this duty was thrust upon him. Yeah. But he's the only king out of all these kings who, who are, well, maybe arguably Rob was thinking of the people, too. But uh, who, who isn't being led by his own hubris, right? He's yeah, he does care. Yeah, yeah, I'd say that. Uh, I think Renly thought he cared, but he was definitely led by his hubris as well. But again, Stannis's care was based on justice. Yeah, he never had like a platform of before of I can make Westeros great again. And I'm really sorry, I just said that. As soon as that came out of my mouth, I felt bad wow, yeah. for <laughs> making any sort of reference to. Don't say it. Made reference to. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you notice I'm skirting around now, but he Get never made political here, man. Any he never made he never had any sort of platform that he was standing on other than I should be the king. Yeah, and that's how it is, and that's how things should be done. And so, yeah, he is moving to more of a okay. Uh, let's see, what else can I say? Well, you can have an eight-year-old as a king, or you can have a guy like me, an experienced commander who's been around the block a few times and, by the way, has a legal claim. Or an 11-year-old girl, which we'll come to that later this episode as well. Sure. If Gorn uh, gets their way. Uh, the, the Night Fires thing at the very beginning, it reminded me of, you guys will have to excuse a friend's reference again, the way Stan is just kind of sitting there, just kind of bearing it and taking it, because he doesn't participate, right? He just stands there, almost stands just kind there. of letting everyone do it and just kind of cringing the whole time. It reminds me of Ross in the We Were On A Break episode, where, I don't know if you guys know this stuff as well as nope. I do, they, yeah. basically Ross cheats on her, kind of, when she says, maybe we need a break, and he's like, fine, fine, we need a break. And that night, he goes and, and some people say cheats on her, some people says just goes and has fun, and it's not cheating because they were on a break. So it's one of the cornerstones of kind of the friends lore. But they get back together a while later, and spoilers, and she's just going on and on about how she's glad that he gained a little perspective, and if all he needed was a little time to get the cheating out of him, now he's back to being who he is. And he's just like, you can see his eyes, it's brilliant acting, you can see his eyes as they're just sitting there. And he's just trying not to say anything, trying not to explode, because he still believes he was right. 
Stannis is the same way. He, he doesn't believe any of this crap, and I feel like there's going to become a moment where he's just going to break and be like, this is all garbage! Right? In front of everybody. <laughs> and Ross does that in this case. He says, we were on a break! <laughs> and then they break up again, because they can't come to terms on the fact that he cheated or didn't cheat. Oh, that's so gross. I can see, I can see Stannis just kind of, not like lashing out, but just kind of being like... And just like doing a, a hand wave and just like turning around and walking away, <laughs> which might almost be worse. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I feel like he's <laughs> he's very conflicted as well because there's like he's even seen things in the fire, right? He has, like, yeah. I, like he doesn't want to believe, but suddenly he has to. The and woman has trying, power. He's trying to come to terms with something that doesn't make logical sense by you know whatever dictates have have led him this far in life and yeah he's he's a very stubborn man so he's honestly he's just kind of being a doubt about it yeah yeah he's being stanisy about it yeah which is why we love him that whole ross and rachel thing is just like (laughs) oh man she could do so much better oh don't get me started on Ross. He's my favorite character so, on the show. So much better. He's such a dirtbag. Whoa. What? Oh, I can't believe he influenced an entire generation of young men who are, like, now in the world taking breaks. He's my favorite friend. Justifying it. All right. You made the wrong <laughs> choice, Scad. Well, you made the wrong choice. You know, one of many. All, the way. All right. Moving on. Uh, I always just liked Phoebe. She's my favorite. Of the three episodes of Friends I've ever watched. I was going to say, I'll I'll do my best not to judge you for that. Carry on. We better move on to the next chapter. Yeah, probably ought to. Okay. Uh, That's John. Please go ahead, Sky. That is me. All right. Where we're going up north where the winter's cold And the icicles bloom like the bluest rose We haven't met his mom, but we love his wolf. He's John Snow. John dreams of winter of the Winterfell Crips. It's Kings of Stone shooing him along. You aren't Stark. Go away. He calls out in his dream for Ned, for Bran, for Rickon, his uncle Benjen, and he even begs Egret for forgiveness, but he gets no responses. But he does see the golden eyes of a grey direwolf, spotted with blood looking back at him. It's creepy. He awakes... Uh, and much like Danny in the House of the Undying, tries to make sense of these poppycock dreams. And then it's on. One blast. A second. Wildlings are at the wall. So John gets ready as quickly as he can in his uh, somewhat still crippled state. Rides the rickety cage to the top of the wall. You might remember that these stairs are uh, incapacitated due to the, the last battle we had at the wall. Uh, and he takes stock when he gets to the top. The Black Brothers are ready. They're well stocked with weapons of all kinds. But so few men. They've got everything they need up there, but not enough men to wield them all. And their opponent? Who knows? It's black as pitch up thar. So Noy solves it. Donald Noy, kind of in command at the wall right now. He solves it by lighting and throwing some pitch. They throw it off the wall, basically lighting it, hoping it explodes so they can just see what's out there. They see a hundred mammoths, a fuck ton of giants... And no telling how many men. And just like that, they attack and are at the gate. Now, I, I was going to go through the battle and just try to, like, summarize it and, you know, do all that. But honestly, just go read it. It's so well done. It's a great battle description. 
It's riveting. I'll give you a few highlights here of just kind of what they do, but I don't, I don't want to try to, like, summarize it, you know, time, you know, moment, moment to moment. So pitch, oil, arrows, spears, rocks, caltrops, all things that have chucked and thrown and shot off the wall at some point during this chapter. The first half of the battle is fought at night, uh, and in the morning it's an open field of destruction. I'll just read uh, a quick bit of that. Um, then, across, then the rising sun broke through to send pale lances of light across the battleground. John found himself holding his breath as he looked out over the half-mile swath of cleared land that lay between the wall and the edge of the forest. In half a night, they had turned it into a wasteland of blackened grass, bubbling pitch, shattered stone, and corpses. The carcass of the burned mammoth was already drawing crows. There were giants dead on the ground as well. But behind them, beneath the trees, were all the wildlings in the world. So, pretty powerful stuff there. Um, The wall really ends up being the difference maker. Uh, arrows clatter against it harmlessly, and charging men on horses kind of run all the way up to get to the wall, not being picked off by the, the men on top of the wall. And they get to it, and they just kind of have to, like, stand there and, like, look around and, like, turn around and go the other direction. They, they can't do anything. It's like charging and getting there and being like, oh, that's, that was disappointing. So they, they kind of can't do anything. Uh, also, John is given command. Donald Noy goes down the gate himself, or down the uh, the little elevator himself, and gives John his command when he leaves. That's John's first command. Uh, as I mentioned, Noy takes a handful of men to guard the tunnel that runs through the wall. They die after the door is shattered by Mag the Mighty. He's, you might remember, uh, one of the giants that uh, John meets when he was with the Wildling Horde. He, Mag the Mighty reaches through the bars and like snaps their heads and necks and stuff and kills them in a pretty gruesome fashion. But Noy dies with his sword buried in Mag's throat. Um, and after seeing this carnage, John decides they must do their best to repair the gate and seal off the tunnel with rubble. The host, uh, the wildling host is massive, extremely intimidating, but John calms his troops, uh, essentially by relying on the wall. He says, uh, he says the wall will stop them. And just, that gives them an, an immense amount of courage, knowing that really they can't do anything to them while they're up there on top of the wall. And then lastly, I'll say, the chapter ends... Uh, with John getting a little bit of, uh, I don't know, a little bit of uh, confidence boost from Maester Amon. And I'll read that real quick, too. This is all Maester Amon. You. You must lead. Yes, John, it need not be for long. Only until such time as the garrison returns. Donald chose you, and Corrin Halfhand before him. Lord Commander Mormont made you his steward. You are a son of Winterfell, a nephew of Benjen Stark. It must be you or no one. The wall is yours, Jon Snow. And that's it, guys. The chapter ends. Oh, go Jon Snow! That go was John. amazing! Oh. Now, see, that is a scene I would like to see immortalized in film. Oh, uh, I too pro- bad I... you haven't gotten that chance. <laughs> Probably won't seek it out, but in my head, just so inspiring. Like, John with a, like his sword and rallying all the all the black brothers, so great. And he says he's got like that maniacal laugh. <laughs> oh yeah, he's he's got the crazy eyes going. Yeah, hard. yeah, for sure. <laughs> Which you don't expect from like your run of the mill hero, but that's that's true. That's how it would be in a situation where your adrenaline's running like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, you said you'd like to see it in film. I I, I don't remember. Did the show not cover this battle? Did they just skip it or what? It's covered, but not, not well. like the book. 
Uh, yeah. It's actually... Never mind. I don't want to talk about this show. <laughs> okay. Great. All right. We can talk later. Sorry for bringing it up. <laughs> no, it's fine. But it's just disappointing to know that this wasn't like a big scene. Blah, blue. Missed opportunity. Well... Yeah. <clears throat> my humble opinion. It, for, for television... Great. For television, it was a good episode for the story that the book is that the show is telling. But as far as an adaptation from this battle that we read about in the book, right. it doesn't come close. Yeah, I mean, th- I think th- this is, I think this is the best battle written battle we've had. The Blackwater was good, but I, I just love the way this this battle's written. It's just the the added wall element is just so intriguing. And what it adds to the battle, with you know, the, just the comedy of those chariots riding up to the wall and being like, "Uh, <laughs> what now?" <laughs> you know, what that reminded me of M- Monty Python when they're at the French castle. <laughs> yeah, they're like, "Attack!" Yeah, attack! Yeah, one of the guys stands there and Lancelot. hits the wall with his sword a bunch the of times. Wall with his sword, yeah. yes, Sir Lancelot's just hitting the wall with his sword. <laughs> <laughs> And then they start dropping farm animals off. <laughs> right. Charge! Yes. Run away! Run away! <laughs> Which underscores the point, anything on top of that wall dropped is a weapon, essentially. Right. And uh, flying cows prove it. Yeah. Um, I, I thought it was odd that the, the, the guys with the the ram yeah didn't have shields like i I feel like that's a fairly common trope in like books and movies Mm -hmm. if you've got a ram going yeah they're gonna be pouring shit and dumping shit and shooting at you from higher up so there's the guys who are moving the ram and there's the guys who are protecting those guys I'm almost positive that's what happened in 300, which is my go-to for <laughs> military tactics. Oh, God, it shouldn't be. Uh, <laughs> it's so realistic. <laughs> Such a... Well, yeah, I totally agree with you. It seemed like a lot of their tactics were just very haphazard. Yeah, um, even John said it was yeah. evident that they lacked discipline. Right, like, they had right. the numbers, and maybe could have done something more, but... I, uh, which, I also don't know how well the giants take those sorts of commands. What, right. do, you, what do you mean, sure. shields? Nothing can hurt me. I'm a towering giant. Uh, yeah, maybe. But and I do what I want. Yeah, and I do what I want. <clears throat> Fine, I'll take this ram because you said so, but get out of my way. We've got to get through the wall, yeah. I mean, on one hand, uh, Mance could be completely cognizant of the fact that he has tons more people than yes. the wall does yep. he's got to know that and so maybe he's thinking you know they've got a limited supply of arrows they've got a limited supply of pitch they've got a limited supply of all these things let's get them to use all that now yeah. and get it out of the way so then we can make a real concentrated attack when they've got nothing left to throw at us which is actually a pretty sound tactic but the problem with doing that is or my question to him doing that in this case is why would you commit all your giants to that first probing yeah. attack why would you commit all your mm. mammoths your best people to that part okay. uh, so so I don't know well, to be fair, know. the Giants did get through the gate. I mean, it but worked. They did their job. Yeah, they got the yeah. wall down. And maybe Mance was thinking, you know what? There's no way these Giants are going to get through the gate. Yeah. Uh, so 
they are going to be my arrow fodder, which is a terrible thing to think. But you know what I mean? Like He might actually be uh, thinking, I'd love it if none of them survived the battle, but helped me win it. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because they're they're a disaster to handle, right? Like I mean they're yeah. they're difficult to control and difficult to talk to and you might not want any of them to live. How are we gonna even get them over the wall or through the wall? Right. Well, I will admit that is like a sound military strategy, but I, I honestly don't believe Mance would ever be thinking that. Now there if we were talking about conviction, there's a guy with conviction about uniting the the wildlings. Yeah, I agree like, with you there. I think he he does care about the the giants, but yeah, I agree. With you. Uh, the other thing I thought of is they're in kind of a hurry. Yes, right. There's I also there's the these thing, magical yeah. forces that are eaten at their. Yeah. Uh, they saw what happened at the fist of the first men around them. Yeah, like, and <laughs> they want to get yeah. through. The, they don't have they don't have time to sit and tunnel under the wall or yeah. do something more sneaky or, or human pyramid. They need to get over the freaking wall. Hey, there you go. Yeah, if you piled all those wildlings up, you'd go 700 feet. Oh, somebody should do the math or a drawing of human pyramid to the top of the wall. Just corpses. <laughs> Make it real gruesome. Oh, I actually want to see, like, human pyramid. Like, I, don't, I wonder how big the base would have to be. That is completely pyramid. beyond my comprehension. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to start for that. Yeah, you'd have to. Well, well, you'd actually have to build a ramp, like, like starting from far away and then sloping it up to the top of the wall. Is what your best <laughs> geometric bet would be. True. Do, so, maybe, maybe my physics isn't good. Would a human pyramid not work if they weren't being yeah, doing pigeons on them? But how would you get sturdy. people up the pyramid? Like, climb. It's got to be functional, right? You climb up people. Just, I mean, it's no, it's listen, no harder than listen, climbing up a ladder I, or a rope. I know, up a wall. The, I know the the the, the load bearing weights of corpses. And a pyramid is just <laughs> not going to cut it. I'm not talking about corpses. Pyramid. I'm talking about live giants being oh. the base of your human pyramid. Like even, a, like cheerleaders. You've seen cheerleaders. Yes, do they have these in Canada? <laughs> Once you get like the third guy standing on top of a another a, a human shoulders, it's going to be like a piece of paper blowing in the wind. Pretty yeah. much, right? Uh, I don't know. The wider you make, I don't know. I don't know. Someone, someone should weigh in on this. Hopefully, they will. Sure, we'll hush something, and we'd love to hear it. Yeah, because I'm not doing the math myself. No, I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> Thank okay. you. Okay, but don't do it with corpses, Brooke. I, I know. I, I know you tend toward the macabre, but let's do it with live humans. And by the way, I took calculus twice. <laughs> Had to upgrade. Oh, dang girl. <laughs> I know. I took it okay. once. It was my only C in college. Oh, yeah? Mm-hmm. All else you was took D's. took that C, didn't you? Was... All, all, all else was S? <laughs> D's, yeah. <laughs> uh, degrees? So, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't have a ton else. Um, mo- one of the things that I thought was interesting is it seems like in most stories, and it, I don't know, not entirely true, but it seems like even in real life, a lot of the time, night is just a time for everyone to just relax, wait till morning, kind of almost like a gentlemanly accord, like, okay, no attacks till morning kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And this we'll battle... We'll pick this back up tomorrow. And what's that? No, I was just agreeing with you. Yeah. And the, and the, yo, yeah, pick this back up tomorrow. And But this night battle is awesome. 
There's so much uncertainty, mm-hmm. and you just have to trust that you're firing arrows at not the ground, right? And uh, I don't know. I really enjoyed that half of the chapter that was about the night battle. Mm-hmm. Agreed. That might add more to the urgency that maybe Mance didn't want to fight at night because, or didn't want to wait till the next morning because he wants to get through as quick as he can. Yeah. And also to the waste Interesting resources all- stuff too. Yeah. Half of the arrows do yeah. hit the ground or something, right? Also remembering that, that Mance has no idea if the Thens attack worked from the previous chapter. He must know. He, I mean, they must have agreed that there was going to be a signal or something if it worked. And yeah, didn't there'd get be a, a Magnar like, standing the uh, welcoming, welcoming him. Lights, uh, yeah, some sort of signal or something like that. Yeah, I mean, he must know or he wouldn't have been gathering everyone at the wood and then charging at the wall, right? Maybe they had agreed upon time that yeah. if you don't hear by this time, right. it didn't work. Right. Or maybe he just, you know, looked at the wall and saw a bunch of Black Brothers walking around on the top and seemed <laughs> deduced that it must yeah. have worked. No, the Thens would have sent out, like, yeah. a messenger. Right. Made a big banner that they flew from the top of the wall, it says. <laughs> we did it! Well, I mean, the, the only argument, I think... Matt's got it. Like he doesn't know whether he's he tried send yet. A page. <laughs> he might not know whether the Fens have even tried yet, right? Like, did they get there by now? We don't know how much mm, time exactly right. is. That's passed, what I'm saying. But... If you don't hear anything by this point, yeah, we're probably all dead, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I don't. Do Before you guys have the sun sets on the third day. Yes. Oh, yeah, Lord. let's uh, let's keep let's keep rolling. Keep rolling. Anything yeah. else of interest here? I mean, it's just pretty much a battle chapter. I mean, I, I guess the other thing of, of real note is John taking command and being a leader and doing yep. a pretty damn effective job. And farewell to Donald Noy. And farewell to Donald Noy. Blacksmith of the stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's one-handed and up in heaven now. Okay. That's right. Arya? Arya. Arya. Arya! On the foot! Horse face! Stick him with the pointy end! Arya! On the foot! Horse face! Stick him with the pointy end! Surprise! Arya is not dead. Great news, right? Turns out when the hound wrote her down, he whacked her with the flat of his axe instead of cleaving her skull in with the blade, which in Sandor's world is a really thoughtful gesture. Yay! Yeah, it's real nice. Anyways, while Arya isn't dead, her life isn't exactly wine and roses. Um, I'm just going to read the first paragraph of this chapter because it really sums up her state of being right now. She could feel the hole inside her Every morning when she woke, it wasn't hunger, though sometimes there was that too. It was a hollow place, an emptiness where her heart had been, where her brothers had lived and her parents. Her head hurt too, not as bad as it had at first, but still pretty bad. Arya was used to that though, and at least the lump was going down, but the hole inside her stayed the same. The hole will never feel any better, she told herself when she went to sleep, which is, uh, yeah, some dark, grim places for a, a young girl. I just realized um, that now is when she should probably go by the name Lumpy Head. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, why, didn't, why, didn't, why didn't she think of that? Yeah. <laughs> She's not Arya Wonderfell. She's Lumpy Head of Despair Town. Okay. 
So she's still kicking it with the hound for lack of better options. And even though she's had plenty of opportunities to off him in creative ways with a knife, with an ax, burning his drunk ass alive, she doesn't have the will with no place to go and no one to turn to. Her only consolation is sleep when she dreams that she's a wolf, a powerful wolf feared by men and animals, warm and well-fed, surrounded by a supportive pack. Anyways, they're still traveling bound for the Eerie to see if Sandor can squeeze some coin out of Aunt Liza. Arya pitches a couple of fits for them to go back to the twins since they don't have confirmation Catelyn and Rob are truly dead. But it's the veil for these two adventurers. They avoid the main roads and parties hunting down stray Northmen, but do come across a piper archer who'd taken a Bolton mace to the shoulder and was slowly dying out against a tree. Arya watches without much emotion while the hound gives the archer the gift of mercy with a dagger through the heart. One night, Arya wolf dreams the smell of her mother. She's with her pack down by a big river, feasting on corpses and carrion crows, when she's drawn into the water by the scent of what we're led to believe is Catelyn's cold, white body, naked and throat slashed, still trickling dead blood. Arya's wolf pulls the body to shore, scaring away another wolf who would have eaten it. She has to leave it when the men in pink and yellow cloaks come riding too close, but feels no remorse. In the morning when Arya wakes, the hound starts to try and talk to Arya about going back for Catelyn. Mostly, it seems to break the awkward silence between the two. But Arya assures him they don't have to because she knows her mother is dead. In the hills below the high pass to the Vale, the hound takes work building a palisade around a tiny village, drinking himself to sleep every night and leaving Arya to her own devices. The village elder talks the hound out of going to the Eyrie because winter is coming and the clans have steel now and more balls. But once the palisade is finished, they get kicked out again and the hound turns them back to the Riverlands trying for River Run and maybe the Blackfish to pay for Arya's ransom. Arya suggests the wall and her half-brother John. But the hound tells her that idea is dumb, the wall being a thousand leagues away They'd have to fight through Freys and swamp lizard lions and invading ironmen and thousands of bloody buggering Northmen. Arya asks the Hound if he's too scared, if he's scared of the Northmen, and if he's lost his belly for fighting. And the chapter ends with Sandor telling her, no, there's nothing wrong with his belly, but he doesn't give a rat's ass about her or her brother. Sandor has a brother too. End scene. That's the chapter. Lots of battle chapters and traveling chapters. Yep. They're walking. They're walking. They're walking. (laughs) They're riding on a horse. Arya is depressed. It's super exciting reading. (laughs) She's up there trying to figure where to go. She does. Yeah, she doesn't doesn't have to uh, ride clinging to the hound anymore, which is really nice. Sweet little craven. Yeah, she names the horse Craven because it ran away. She's so she's so cold. She's yeah, like, totally. She, she even admits it's a good horse. It could probably outrun Stranger. She takes good care of it. But this yeah. horse has a terrible attitude, so it's getting named a coward. Yeah. You wuss. <laughs> yeah. I was intrigued by the budding relationship of 
Sandor and Arya. I mean, they sit there and she talks about how she's thinking about killing him and stuff, and he's calling her every name in the book, you know, and they sit and bicker and everything. But but one one little passage of two or three sentences stuck out to me that really gives us an insight into what each other meet is coming to mean to each other. I'll just read it real quick. It says, The hound no longer watched her as closely as he had. Sometimes he did not seem to care whether she stayed or went, and he no longer bound her up in a cloak at night. One night I'll kill him in his sleep, she told herself, but she never did. One day I'll ride away on Craven, and you won't be able to catch me, she thought, but she never did that either. And it's interesting that there you can tell, you can read between those lines that they're starting to mean something to each other, but it's still a little unclear what it is. But I don't know, is that companionship something they both just kind of need right now, even if they don't want to admit it? Well, yeah, they're oh, they're like a couple of old people who <laughs> just have no one else. <laughs> no other options. Yeah. So they, they just like bicker and snipe at each other and uh-huh. they they like kill each other in each other's sleep if they weren't going to die so soon anyways. <laughs> wow. You know how it is. <laughs> Hopefully not for many more years. But 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 you're but you're arguing that maybe they're they've found a common a common bond. Well, it just it just appears that they have every chance to sever the tie between the two of them, and for some reason they're sticking together. You know, for Sandor, he's kind of admitted, I I'm not going to get anything for you, it, and it's going to be too hard anyways. He's kind of hinted at that before. And Arya has every opportunity to run away, and she never does. I'm definitely not suggesting there's anything tender like a father-daughter relationship there where he's going to tell her stories before bedtime and she's going to snuggle into him to go to sleep or something. (laughs) But, you know, it it appears that there's something keeping the two of them together. I think think what's keeping them together is uh, this is better than anything else I've got. And I'll put that in two ways. For Sander, it's kind of like Arya's kind of like an old baseball card. It's like, yeah, I might not get anything for you, but I might. Maybe this guy will hit 40 home runs next year, and then you'll, your card will be worth something. Maybe the Blackfish will turn up and know that you're out there and think that it's you, and I got nothing to lose by keeping you here. You cost little enough to keep alive, so I'll just do that. And from Arya's perspective, it's she's now seen how shitty the world is, and she actually runs through this chapter and we'll talk about that in a minute, but she runs through kind of what her options really are and where she could go, and she knows that Sander is really good protection. And so for her, she doesn't have any better options either. So to me, it's more along the lines of what Brooke was getting at with the old people thing, although that's even more depressing than I was putting it. Uh, <laughs> they just don't have any better options, and so they're both sticking it out. Yeah, I, know. I think you're you're both right in many regards. I'd also argue that Arya gives... Sandor a bit of legitimacy like um, in this little town that they come across yeah. and they actually hire him to help build the wall um, and then afterwards when they get kicked out uh, so uh, so the village elder admits that that he knew who Sandor was and I, and I believe that if Sandor hadn't been traveling with his quote unquote daughter that uh, they would have been less eager to invite him in and use him for his manual labor like they would have just turned that trouble away at the door but mm. um you know having a kid kind of gives you like oh well this, this person is qualified to be a parent maybe they're qualified to hammer in some some two by fours yeah they've got something riding on it 
Yeah. That's something riding on being a model employee here. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. But, uh, but, and so that might be one reason why he, why he keeps her around. Also to help take care of the horses. That's yeah. handy. Well, t- touching back on, on Arya's options real quick, I just wanted to note something. A general life observation from the SCAD. No one asked for me to be their life coach here, but I'm going to try anyway. <laughs> she, I wish. She's... be a lot of depressing lives out there. <laughs> SCAD the life coach. Uh, she, she says... She gives a lot of options about what she could do, and there's kind of a sense in a lot of them about she just doesn't know if she can go back. It's going back. It's not going forward. Um, and I, I just... I think a lot of people think that way. You can't go back, and it's not true. <laughs> you can go back, and you can start again, and you can go to things that you know, and you can look, even if it's shameful, you can look that in the eye, and you can come out on top. And don't don't always think of going back to something you had before as, as a failure. Think of it as a way to progress differently. And I think she could have done that. I mean, Lady Smallwood is a perfect opportunity. Not that she could have got there really easily. She doesn't even know where it is, but... She kind of dismisses it, and it's like, you know what? Why not? It's a better situation than you're in now, and it's a situation that you could maybe build something from. And, you know, I think people too easily dis- dismiss some options that they have because they are they feel like it's failure, they feel like it's going backward. And we as readers That's... sometimes take on the attitude of the POV, and so Arya says... I can't go back to Lady Smallwood because that just wouldn't work. And so we're like, yeah, she can't go to Lady Smallwood because that wouldn't work. And so good on you and good on us at times for seeing past the POVs, sometimes uh, flawed perspectives, mm. attitudes. Yeah. Guess that's what we're here for, yeah. I, I do want to touch, though, Matt, on what you're talking about with the Hound feeling something. He, he, he clearly is working through something. I mean, I made it very cold like an old baseball card, but... He's he's very clearly working through something. He brings up the thing with the with the mother, you know, like this that's thing the about big, your that's mother. That's a kicker for me. Yeah, yeah, this thing about your mother. Like he's he's clearly going to say something. I mean, we have no idea what he's going to say, but to even and start a tragic, sentence like I that, think that we yeah that we didn't get what he was about to say. Yeah, it could have been deep. It could have been. Could have been. And but but you know that he quashes a little bit at the end. You know, like I've got a brother too. <laughs> you know, like uh, that doesn't sound uh, you know too heartfelt. But he's he's going through some stuff here. Like you know, he, he wants to drink himself to sleep every night. He's he is at a rough rough patch at the moment, and mm-hmm. he's grasping for something to make his life meaningful. I think. Well, he's always had something to rely on, and that was being his, his steady work. He. Employed by the Lannisters, working for Joffrey, or protecting Joffrey. Yeah, that was his job. Some and... people would call that a rut. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's a yeah. steady paycheck for a guy who doesn't seem like he really is interested on thinking on his own. Uh, he's interested in being a hound. Um, well, I don't know if he's interested in that, but he's accepted it. Uh, and now he's all of a sudden in a situation where he does have to think critically through things and and figure stuff out and. People handle those types of situations differently when they're thrust upon them suddenly. I also think he's still feeling a lot of shame about running from from so many things. Yeah, from the battle. Yeah. Um, from the Brotherhood of Without Banners. He keeps getting reminded that he he might have lost his taste for battle. Mm-hmm. 
and he actually has, but he doesn't like being reminded about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. That would probably drive a man like him to drink every night. Well, he was already pretty much an alcoholic, so... Um, do, what, do you guys want to talk about the 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 river thing with Cat at all? It's big, maybe. Okay, well, let's just say this. We know the wolf dreams are usually true. We know that the wolf pulled out something that smelled like what? What did she? How did she? How did she call it? Cold death. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Just like, ooh, don't bite that. Did I? Did I spoil something already? I no, mean... but we're we're treading a very fine line. <laughs> uh, all right, uh, all right. Cool that Arya is experiencing wolf dreams more and more. Almost every night, it says. Yeah. Yeah. yeah at least she had that. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead, Brooke. If you want to move on. Well, I'm not. I'm not saying we can't talk about it. But do you have salient points that aren't going to spoil? <laughs> Well, I, no, I, I, I don't remember what it, it actually says about what the wolf finds and whom specifically. Um, well, we get confirmation that it is Catelyn because okay. right. uh, Arya knows it's Catelyn, wakes up the next day and is like, we right, don't have okay. to go back to my right. mom. Okay. So She's, she's dead. dead. Right. So, uh, I don't know. We, weird that the wolves respond to Catelyn's body in that way. She's not a Stark, right? She had no wolf. She's not technically a Stark. So it's it's weird that if it's... Unless it's Arya completely in control of that wolf, it would be weird that the wolves would respond that way, I guess is all I'd say. Yeah, it is yeah. interesting. So Sorry, we've talked about it before, like who controls who more during these warg sessions? Is it the wolf controlling... Is it the wolf's mind still taking over more is the human mind sort of taking control of the wolf we've discussed that symbiotic relationship and how that works and it still isn't super clear it appears from bran and summer that maybe uh with practice things can be different but yeah it's it's really weird it doesn't seem like one is kind of dominant over the other yet they're kind of working together somehow um how that is i don't know i don't really have anything important to reveal or anything (laughs) Yeah. Um, I would just argue that Arya is half Tully, right? So that would leak into her senses and vis-a-vis Nymeria's senses. Yeah, I, th- I think it just paints that, uh, assuming that's Nymeria, uh, mm. that sh- <laughs> she is being controlled by Arya's senses. Because I don't think Nymeria mm. the wolf would care that much. But with Arya in control, mm. she does. Yeah, I guess Nymeria would have smelled Catelyn before, so there would be some small bond there. Recognition. I mean, yeah, we we saw on a closer scale that Summer really liked and respected Catelyn. Yeah. So true. Made that extended to all the wolves, except yeah, for Ghost. Probably Ghost probably probably hated Catelyn. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> Such a jerk to my human. <laughs> <laughs> Lifting his tail at her. What have you? What has he done to you? <laughs> he was born. All right, let's uh, let's keep going. Okay. Tyrion. 
Cripples and bastards and broken things But the power of the mind can give you wings Drinking and japing and yeah ladies Tyrion Lannister or Imp if you please so Tyrion's locked in a cell and as his uncle Kevin arrives to speak with him, we're soon filled in on all of the details. Chiefly, Tyrion stands accused of regicide for the murder of King Joffrey. He's to be judged by the king's hand, which of course happens to be his dad, Tywin. So to keep things fair and unbiased, Tywin has called two others to serve in judgment with him. Mace Tyrell, Joffrey's father-in-law and the red viper himself oberon martell who we know hates lannisters uh, interesting choices i'd love to discuss them later anyways also kevin reveals that if Tyrion were to demand a trial by combat as he did at the vale that cersei had already chosen the mountain that rides gregor clegane as her champion hmm not good but uh, astute choice by cersei and finally he finds out that Cersei has already compiled an ever-growing list of witnesses to testify against him at his trial, which is to occur in just three days. Tyrion's given leave to call witnesses of his own, but the defender and savior of King's Landing can really only think of one witness who would stand for him, which is really depressing. And that witness is Sansa Stark. Of his dear wife, he's heard nothing. In fact, no one has. And there's even a bounty out for her safe return. But for his part, Tyrion believes Sansa was the one who poisoned Joff, uh, with help, of course. Uh, Tyrion's only request of Kevin ends up being that Podrick bring him Bronn. And we can guess why. The same man who killed Vardis Egan as Tyrion's champion could surely be enticed into a repeat performance, right? Help me, Obi-Bron Kenobi. You're my only hope. Uh, <laughs> wrong. Bronn who took his time in coming to see Tyrion, reminds Tyrion and us that although Tyrion is his friend, Bronn is at heart a sellsword. And for one, this is the mountain we're talking about here. Gregor Clegane, Vardis Egan, he is not. And the second uh, thing that Bronn brings up is the real kicker. Cersei has already gotten to Bronn and arranged for him to marry into House Stokeworth to none other than Lawless. Remember her? The simple-minded second daughter of Lord Stokeworth who was raped during the mob's attack on Joffrey back in a cock. Yep. And Bronn seems pleased as can be at the prospect of hitching his wagon to Lawless. Uh, you have to think that this is this situation is better than Bronn could have ever imagined for her, for himself, and he's not about to give it up for just about any amount of gold that Tyrion could offer him. He says, I sell my sword. I don't give it away. I'm not your bloody brother. Uh, Tyrion, again, knowing Bronn was his only hope, uh, gives him about as kind a parting as he is able to at that point, and we say goodbye to the Tyrion-Bronn duo, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, the day of the trial arrives, and Tyrion, alone and championless, goes on to meet a fate that appears to be sealed. Hundreds have turned out to see him be tried, and it seems that just as many served as witnesses. So after Tyrion enters his not guilty plea to the judgment panel of Tywin, Mace, and Oberyn, the line of witnesses against him begins. Uh, it starts positively enough with Balon Swan being the first witness, but then it pretty much goes downhill from there. Boris Blunt, the Kettleblacks, the maesters who performed Joff's autopsy, Grand Maester Purcell, who we know has no reason to love Tyrion, and a who's who of Westerosi nobles take their turn testifying against Tyrion. Some tell the truth insofar as it incriminates Tyrion, some tell half-truths, and some tell straight-up lies, but they all corroborate 
as Tyrion is left wondering how he could have made so many enemies. That night, with the trial set to continue the next day, Tyrion is again visited by Kevin, who brings him an interesting offer. If he confesses, Tywin will allow him to take the black. Uh, Tyrion scoffs at this, claiming his father cares nothing for him, and in response, Kevin speaks with more fervor than Tyrion has ever heard him speak with, singing Tywin's praises as, yes, a hard man, but also a just one. Uh, And so taken aback by this, Tyrion agrees to at least consider the offer. And that offer is looking better and better by the minute. Uh, The next day, Varys is called to the witness chair, where he is able to essentially prove Tyrion did everything but actually put the poison in the cup. This is all based on written accounts from his little birds, so if you want to count that as proof, there it is. Uh, With the trial all but over, Cersei says they have one more witness who will testify the next day, and the defeated Tyrion's like, great, one more, and he returns to his chambers. And it's there that we get the final interaction of this long chapter, and it's not someone who any of us expected. It's Oberyn Martell. Uh, Tyrion's judge and a proclaimed Lannister hater. Oberyn admits that he actually is pretty sure Tyrion's innocent. And after a long conversation, Oberyn hints at a couple things. One, Cersei has made passes at him, even hinting at marriage. Uh, Two, he threatens to crown Myrcella, who is currently a ward at Dorne, if Tommen is crowned. And he even makes a veiled threat at Tywin, who may not have delivered the killing blow to his niece and nephew back at King's Landing uh, during Robert's Rebellion, but who nevertheless laid their bodies at King Robert's feet. And it's with that, with that final statement, that Oberyn finally reveals his reason for being there that night. He wants revenge. He proclaims that he can deliver Tyrion. And when Tyrion questions how one judge in three can deliver him... Oberyn slyly replies, not as your judge, as your champion. And that's where the chapter ends. Solid chapter. Mm-hmm. Great chapter. Good chapter. Yeah. Great chapter. In in order to be his champion, what is Oberyn asking for in return from Tyrion? Nothing, really. Yeah, interesting. I think he just wants a shot at who he knows is going to be the champion opposite him. Yeah. I think that's what he wants in return. It, it, I, <clears throat> We know that Tywin's doing his best to keep Gregor from Oberyn. We read that in a previous chapter. Um, and and Oberyn seems like a sly guy. I bet he's on to that, that yeah. Tywin's leading him on. And he realized, this is my chance at him. I can take this chance. Yeah, okay, fair enough. What What did you think of Bronn's decision? Correct? I mean, as much as we love the Tyrion and Bronn relationship... He can't fight the mountain, right? Oh, I, he could. Uh, he could fight them. Uh, he'd probably die. Uh, but I think the decision is solid and in line with his character and, and, and history. Uh, mm-hmm. Braun has made no bones ever about being about anything but himself. You know, the, the thing that has always kept him loyal to Tyrion is money. Um, and in this case, he's being <laughs> Tyrion's side is being met by another Lannister who can offer virtually the same thing plus more. And so, yeah, yeah I think Braun is being consistent with everything with he's Braun. always been about. Yeah. Even Tyrion has no hard feelings. It's right. Like, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like his, his frustration is more just out of stress and knowing that Braun made the right choice and that Tyrion really can't do anything about it. I was, I was thinking about it, and I mentioned this to Scad a little bit, 
Tyrion's offer to a sellsword, you know, at first is good. You know, I'll give you all this gold. I'll give you all this gold. But logistically and from a practical perspective, for a sellsword who travels around uh, just giving his sword to other people and really doesn't have a home to come home to, what good does gold do in the end? You, you know, like you you don't have a credit union in Westeros where you can go and deposit your gold and then pull it out of an ATM somewhere at some time. You'd have to like carry all that gold on your back that or bury <laughs> it under a tree somewhere, you know, or something like that. And, and so it, it, the gold thing it, it, after a while, it seems like it doesn't make sense to keep doing it unless of course, Braun wants to get ahead in life, which it appears he does uh, he definitely wants to to move up, and so then you think, well, he's got all this money, so he could buy a a manse in King's Landing, like the one they put Shay up in. Uh, but then, what does he do? You never hear of like the yeah. lawyers of King's Landing <clears throat> doing anything, have any upward mobility, or the doctors or the rich people of King's Landing. You eventually hit a glass ceiling, unless, unless you are a member of a noble house. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the kicker. Like, even Littlefinger, you know, he, he arrives to be the master of coin, right? But he really can't go anywhere from there, can he? Until he gets, like, Harrenhal, or until he's granted, uh, he becomes part of a major house, essentially. Yeah. It's, it's the same, Braun has to recognize that, too, that <clears throat> you don't get anywhere in Westeros unless you're part of a noble family. And Cersei, to her credit, must have recognized that, and she offered that to him before Tyrion could. And, you know, good on Cersei for recognizing that. And Bronn, of course, jumped on that, knowing that if he's going to get ahead, he needs to start somewhere, and that needs to be as part of a noble family, I think. Yeah, I'd say Bronn has, if he gets enough gold that he can be comfortable just sitting around doing nothing for the rest of his life. Exactly. Then yeah. maybe that would be fine. He could buy, like you said, buy a manse and just kind of hang out and live off the gold that he gets by doing yep. whatever he does for Tyrion or Cersei or whomever. But if he doesn't mm -hmm. get enough gold, and this is something that became abundantly clear to me, I think I've made this point before, but it became abundantly clear to me reading about Duncan, uh, Duncan the Tall in uh, Night of the Seven Kingdoms. Being a knight get, doesn't get you anything. It, it gets sure. you the respect of some people, uh, the disdain of some other people, uh, but it doesn't give you money or, or anything like that regularly. You've still got to earn money doing something. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, he's he's a knight now. Uh, he still has to go sell his sword or do something else that will bring him money. And so, yeah, you're right. His his way out of you know his life changing move is not just being a knight. It's joining a house where he gets incomes from other people just for being there. That's that's yeah. a, that's. And he the doesn't seem interested in doing like you said, just sitting around. He doesn't seem content with that. He wants to keep moving up, moving up, moving up. I think he's content. This is I, I think he'd be content once he's. Once he's married Lawless. Yeah, and, and gets in a situation where he's not stuck. Right. Right. What would you uh what would you call their wedding? We've got the red wedding, we've got the purple wedding. This be the black wedding? Black Lawless wedding. and Braun? The dim wedding. The gold wedding. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> the soft and sarcastic wedding. <laughs> I just want to be there. <laughs> Gonna be a lot of eye rolling, <laughs> like on Parks and Rec, where where Andy and April get married, Brooke, and uh, Tom Haverford's like vying to be the best man, and he's like trying to 
become the best man of the wedding, I'd be like that with Braun. One of my life goals is to be a best man. It's a baller position. You get drunk, you make speeches, and you make love to the prettiest bridesmaid, usually standing from behind. I'd be like, <laughs> hey, Braun, you, uh, you need best man. And I'd be doing everything I could to <laughs> just be there for my boy. Right. I wish them the best. I, I wish think them that all the happiness. Braun made the way right move. He doesn't he's gonna have a pretty sweet ride from here on out. Oh, how about, literally. How about this trial? Laughable? Effective? <sighs> it's, it's kind of exhausting. Yeah. Because it's so much overkill. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I I I was reminded myself of, of Monty Python uh on this part. Uh, not not Grail, but uh, Flying Circus skit. Uh, I don't know if you guys know it, but he, a guy walks. He, there's basically all these rooms that are set up, and there are just people inside waiting to talk to you, and they have different themes. And the man has come for an argument, and he goes in the door. Basically, the, ostensibly, you walk in and you can have an argument for some with someone. You pay and you have an argument. And he's walked in, and the guy <laughs> just starts screaming at him, yelling, cursing at him, insulting him. And he says, now wait a minute, the guy that walks in, now wait a minute, I'm here for an argument. The guy says, oh, oh, this is abuse. So he's come into the room for abuse instead of an argument. Tyrion has come <laughs> for a trial, and what he's gotten is abuse. They're just throwing all this shit, most of it true, <laughs> frankly, but just all these reminders of all the shitty things he's done in his life just thrown in his face instead of a trial of, did he poison the guy? There, there's a bit, I just thought of this, there's a bit in... Uh, in uh, A Few Good Men, where they bring up all the members of, of this guy's uh, military group, and all of them all of them are about to uh, testify to the same thing, that they all heard this guy give a, give a command order to do a certain thing. And, but, but none of them were there when the event happened to see it happen. And so it's the same thing here. They're all giving these kind of character witness things about things that Tyrion thinks or said or whatever, None of them saw anything with the poison. It's all misdirection. It's all a magic show, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's awful. Yeah, it is thorough. It's Very. Awful. I feel I I feel bad for Tyrion, and yet he has sown it. You know, he's he's reaped what he's sown a little bit. He's always said that his mouth would do him in, and he's right. The cumulative effect of all the shit that he's said to people that have been that he's made enemies from with his mouth. Those enemies are now securing his fate, right? I'm sure they're getting favors from Cersei and things like that too, but they are very amenable to helping Cersei because Tyrion treated them like shit and insulted them and made snide comments and was just generally a little shit pile to them, right? He's sealed this himself. Many of them, yep. Pycelle comes to mind. Yeah. (laughs) And Mary. Yeah, if Stannis was still in King's Landing, he would have... He would have stood witness because he would have been stone cold sober during that feast. <laughs> <laughs> would have seen everything and justice would be served. Yeah. He didn't do it. Yeah. I saw. Yeah, it's a lot of character assassination. You're right. But I, I don't think Tyrion is. I don't think he was out to make enemies. His, his position and circumstances in life kind of like. No, that, gained him a lot of disfavor. That's actually my whole point. He wasn't out to make enemies. It's just his mm-hmm. shitty mouth made a lot of people <laughs> hate him. Right? He wasn't trying to be 
t- terrible and mean. It's just he's so sarcastic and, you know, kind of, I don't know, just that, just he's so Tyrion-y that he got under people's yeah. skin and they hated it's him. Like the way he, yeah, the way he keeps on interrupting the trial, even yeah. though Tywin has been very clear that there will be dire consequences if he does it again. He yes. just can't help it. He himself. can't help it. Yeah. Can't help it. That mouth just keeps getting in his way. <laughs> Um, one parallel I noticed between his this trial and his last one in the veil in the veil like several times he wished for his brother that his brother was there to support him yeah. to witness for him to, to be his champion he hasn't thought about Jamie once this entire chapter mm-hmm. and interesting that Jamie's there yeah Jamie is actually there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. but Tyrion hasn't seen him yeah He's back mm. in the back. That's a parallel. I, 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 I would, I would talk. I would say it indicates the hopelessness of his situation. That he's not even, he's not even letting himself cling to this, this tiny oh. little glimmer of his heroic brother showing up and saving him. Like it's just, this is the end. He's just kind of riding it out. Mm-hmm. And, and interestingly, there is a hero in this tale, and that hero is so sassy, and I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> I would sooner have scorpions, hundreds of scorpions fall on me. Cersei. <laughs> go anywhere near yeah. Cersei in her naked clothes. Anywhere near that claptrap of death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Uh, so great. <laughs> oh, and how sad that uh, that Jamie like freaks out on Tywin at the thought of Cersei marrying Oberyn, and he marrying Marjorie in the last in last week's or last episode, and yet here we find out that Cersei's been making the passes at Oberyn a little bit. Mm-hmm. How sweet, Cersei. Yeah, I I think Oberyn probably probably took a look at uh, Lancel Lannister and was like. Nope, not going near. Her. He yeah, looks like a talk husk. About that? <laughs> His life force was, has been those, drained. Those, I am not interested. Those wounds were not sustained heal. in battle, my friend. <laughs> But yeah. I love how he admires uh, his lover, Eloria. Uh, Eloria. Eloria. Like she wants to go for it. Yeah. She's so dirty. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, blame it on her. Mm-hmm. No Tyrells say anything at the trial. Is that because no. it's a conflict of interest of having a Tyrell on the, doing the judging? I didn't even notice. All yeah, those people to... brought up and not a single Tyrell says a thing. Right. Or Lannister, right? Which would yeah. go to your point. To the point, yeah. Since yeah. Tywin's a judge. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Is it can I mean, <clears> certainly <throat> like a brother or something can testify at a trial in our world. I don't, I don't think it would be oh, out of bounds or anything, but... You'd think that someone like Garland would be a star witness, having been right there. Right next to him, yeah. Or Leonette, his wife, right there. Yeah, it just it just speaks to, I don't know, shenanigans or the machinations underneath. Yeah. yeah, I wonder if Elena was like, I don't want anybody up there, just yeah. so that there's no like cross-contamination, so there's no even inkling that yeah. we might have been involved. Right. Like... No one even like like interprets the testimony that the Tyrells were involved, so we'll just stay right out of it. Yeah, just stay out. We're grieving. We're grieving still. Mm-hmm. We don't. Yeah. Uh, what did you guys think of Kevin being so? I don't know. I, I felt like he was being really fair to Tyrion, but also completely unfair, and that he had zero faith in his in his nephew. 
only supported by his extreme love for his brother. Holy cow. He loves Tywin. Yeah, I, I think Kevin's a pretty simple My little creature. brother loved me that much. <laughs> yeah. It's not happening in my family. Yeah. There's no admiration. Uh, <laughs> only mocking. Uh, I don't believe it for a second. Uh, I think Kevin's a pretty simple creature. Yeah. Mm. I, I, but he kind of believes what he's told, and um, he's not doing a ton of deduction. It looks like the evidence stacks up against Tyrion, and so he's going with that. Um, and, you know, he's for most of his life, he's just been told the truth by Tywin, and that's how he sees it. And so he has the most positive view of Tywin a person can have, because Tywin's who he gets his truth from. But, yeah, yeah I just look at him as a, a piece being moved by Tywin. Mm. Yeah. I mean, he you know, he does make that, that plea about the black, which is... Um, interesting it's Um, from tywin yeah it's from tywin um but kevin kind of recommends it as a path right you can go take Mm -hmm. you know you can go take the black so yeah Tyrion's pretty astute in that he would never get that opportunity though yeah we yeah it's one of the questions i had is is that would be super lip service i don't know yeah i don't know i if if tywin didn't take care of him cersei would have yeah, that's probably not true. Unless, yeah, unless somebody secreted him out. I mean, we've seen that happen before. I have a theory about that. All right. But we better save it for Tell later us. just Tell in case. Dad. Yeah. Uh, I think I could probably say it here, but just to be sure, we should probably save it for later. Okay. Of Tywin's intentions. That'll be my teaser. Mm. Mm. You know, I'm starting to feel like maybe you're a bit of a Kevin Lannister here. Really like Think that so? Tywin, Matt. Yeah, I don't. Really I don't fix, mind him. Really fixated on him. I'm very, I'm definitely <laughs> very fascinated by him. I wouldn't yeah. say I like him a lot. Yeah, but I'm fascinated by the character of Tywin Lannister, and I have been for a long time. So I'm just giving you a hard well time. There. No, you've you've absolutely <laughs> hit on a point though. I am extremely fascinated by Tywin Lannister because he's someone chops. that is so far opposite me, both in his facial hair growing abilities <laughs> and. His execution of his execution of anything important. (laughs) His parenting methods. Oh, I wish I could be as bad a father as Tywin. Yeah, (laughs) we got an email from from. uh, uh, Gosh, I can't remember who it was now. Um, Sorry about that. I'm missing your name, but just I I think calling Tywin a monster. Maybe they mentioned like the biggest monster in the books, and I. I, It was Michael. uh, Was it Michael? Yeah, Michael Bird, maybe. but uh yeah he's 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 awful i mean he's he's you you can you can always make make an argument for for his actions that they are for the greater good whether or not they turn out that way or not you could say that he's making his choices based on the greater good for the people that he thinks that's for the greater good and i think in in a world of ice and fire i think that's the way that uh the maester that wrote that perceives right. him or, or paints it that that he's in all the things that he does he's trying to do it for the greater good but when you see how he calculates and see him in the back door you know back room shenanigans he he is just a monster too i think mm. if by monster you mean Unfeeling. able to execute without emotion yes. yeah then i i wouldn't disagree with you there yeah. We're all influenced just, greatly by our yeah. own point of view. What is it that Obi-Wan says? Uh, 
to Kevin, yeah. he's a hero and a savior of House Lannister after yeah. the bungling that their father did to the house. But to to someone like us looking at his, it was the things that you said, Scad. It's yeah. It's yeah. it's yeah. He's a smart guy, and and in some some people's perspectives, he might be a good guy. But the fact that he completely lacks any sort of compassion or mm-hmm. love, yeah. just that's his monster trait. Like he right. cannot love. He might have once loved his dead wife, but that's all gone, and he hasn't that's loved a single it. person. Yeah. Sense. Well, it's like yeah. Jamie comes through the door after months of being away, Ooh, and yeah. the only thing that Tywin gets emotional about in any way is when he finds out that Jamie's hand is gone. And then minutes later, he's already on to the topic of who he's going to marry Jamie off to now that he's back. It's it, it, to your point. Yeah. Yeah. It's a real piece of work. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> Anyways. All right. Uh sounds like we got some stuff to discuss in Dad. Should we move on to Jamie? Sure. Hi. All right. Hi, May. Jamie Lannister. Would you know that he's deadly in a fight and a smile so wide to get cheating at the palm of his hand? Jamie Lannister. Got a thing for sister gonna keep it quiet, so we'll push a kid out a window. And when that king's lying Dead, it doesn't matter, reason, bottom line is this the treason And deep inside, could there be something only if you can see a hero Could that be, said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister Say it again, said Jamie, said Jamie, said Jamie Lannister uh-uh-uh. A white book records the exploits of all the Kingsguard And this is where Jamie must write his future to best alter his past Jamie is uncomfortable in his Kingsguard garb. It hangs loose on his frame after all the weight he's lost. Uh, his travails through the uh, through the Riverlands, and his sword hangs awkwardly on the wrong hip. But to this reader, it's fitting. He was far too comfortable as an awful knight. Perhaps some discomfort is fitting to become a good one as he aims. Jamie reads Barristan's entry in the White Book, all the while wondering how he fits in with such exalted company as heads of the Kingsguard. The bold, Barristan, lived up to his nickname. His account reads like a damned Greek hero. Jamie's, in comparison, reads like a court jester, nearly a quarter of it focusing on the Kingslaying and pretty much omitting any of his major deeds. Jamie regrets where he landed. He had wanted to be a great knight like Barristan, or like Sir Arthur Dane, and his course was diverted, though he can't place exactly where things started to go wrong. The other brothers uh, disturb his thoughts by entering for the uh, meeting of the Kingsguard, and Jamie quickly judges them, finding them mostly wanting. His first question as they sit down is, Did my brother do this? Referring to the aforementioned, uh, or aforecovered trial. Uh, in stark contrast to the previous chapter, though, no one here can really agree on who poisoned Joff. Almost like the circus lights are off and everybody's like, eh. Uh, it certainly isn't a free-for-all against Tyrion, at least, uh, like the public trial is. Something Tyrion... Um, somebody says Sansa may have done it even the High Septon is jokingly called out but at least they all admit they don't know for sure so Jamie kind of marks it down as, as something they can't figure out now he moves on uh, deciding that he'll come back to this mystery later himself to try to get some answers so the order of the day is now protecting Tommen the new king and he gets right to work Boris Blunt will now taste all of Tommen's food 
this is a new job for Boris that almost results in him skewering Jamie. Uh, then he moves on to Kettleblack, vetting him, judging him to be capable with a sword, but of very questionable morals and low social standing. Still, he'll do, at least he can fight. He then chastises Sir Marin for just allow following orders blindly, rather than thinking like an intelligent uh, Kingsguard member should, and he makes Marin promise that he will no longer follow stupid blind orders. He moves on to Balin Swan next. He confirms his loyalty and motives, forcing him to choose between family and king. Jamie knows he has a good one when Balin chooses wisely and cleverly, promising to not do what Jamie did when he chose his family over the king. But for Loras, this evaluation is a little bit more complicated. Loras is young and arrogant, and Jamie realizes he's talking to himself at age 16. So he takes a different tack, and he starts praising his skill, softening him up a little bit. By the end, Loras swears loyalty and speaks earnestly of his fallen lover, Renly, and Jamie is won over. Loras is still a good one, and can be taught to be a great one. So if you were counting, that's a crippled worthless in battle commander, a fat food taster, a malicious man that wants no accountability for the decisions made, a blade without a conscience, and then two quality brothers. <laughs> so Tommen will be lucky to last a fortnight with this lot. The final act of this chapter is in Jamie convincing Loras to hear Brienne out. He confesses that he believes Brienne's sad story, uh, that she did not murder Renly. And by the end, he has Loras himself half-convinced and ready to go to Brienne to find out uh, whether he believes her or not. Let her try to prove her innocence to him. Uh, and that's pretty much the end of the chapter. Uh, what do you think of Jamie's kind of first stab at Kingsguard leadership? First Kingsguard meeting. Yes. <laughs> he should have brought donuts or something. Yeah. That was grim. <laughs> Who brought the oranges? God damn it! <laughs> and then shut the box right when they were reaching for the donut. <laughs> like nope. Like uh, Rich, like Richard closers. Gere with the necklace and Pretty Woman. <laughs> donuts are for closers. <laughs> donuts are for closers. Closers are for donuts are for those who can keep the king alive. <laughs> Uh, Balin, I liked your answer. You can have a donut. <laughs> Just a glazed one, though. Uh, it was, uh, you know, I love Jamie's chapters, like, ever since we got his point of view. But this is a sober one. He's a he's a lot less cocksure and snipey yeah. lately. He's uh, much more brooding and, yeah. I don't know. It's not I, lame. I still enjoy the to... chapters, but... Yeah, it'd be interesting to get that chapter uh, again I've said this a lot about other chapters it'd be interesting to get this chapter from one of the Kingsguard's POVs just yeah. to see how Jamie comes off to them you know because we see how he's coming off to himself which isn't completely confident yeah I yeah. I love Balin's point of view ba- Balin hmm. is the the most trustworthy of this lot to me um, you know, the... oh but remember he's so gossipy that's no, what Sansa that's not, about that's not Balin we've had this argument before <laughs> that was Eris Oakhart. Okay. Uh, but he's he's the others have too much skin in the game on this. Loras kind of already kind of competitive with Jamie. The others are just Marin and Boris have served with them. They have bad perspectives on. But I'd I'd be interested in Balin's perspective of Jamie and what he's doing here. Yeah. Hmm. Feel like we got it from Osmond's point of view. It would just be like Jamie <laughs> making that noise, like the teacher in Peanuts cartoons. 
Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Husband's <laughs> thinking about <laughs> what's for dinner. Yes. Husband would be like, I bet I could beat him at beer pong. <laughs> <laughs> I could totally take that guy. Oh, kettle blacks. <laughs> With his popped collar and everything. Yeah. I love the kettle blacks. Yeah. They're bros. They're yeah, bros. guys. <laughs> what do we call them before? Minions or... I don't remember. Something. Uh, uh, all right. So, so I, Jamie's. So you mentioned a sober chapter. I agree. Uh, to me, this is the best Jamie's looked. Um, he's, you know, he's he's actually reflecting on his past and uh, trying to make decisions mm-hmm. from it. And uh, you know, it's. I, I love you know, it. It's, I would call it. I'm, I'm not. I shouldn't have framed it as complaining. I, it's a credit to Germ's writing skills yeah. that. Jamie's at this point in his arc and it's so evident just from you know his POV Brooke it's like um, you're reading my notes I have a note here brilliant writing from Gurm to paint Jamie is uncomfortable (laughs) in every way growth is uncomfortable that's my note whole motion of holding the sword from the other side clothing fitting badly hanging loose feeling like a stranger in his own house yeah I put all these bullet points down of the specific instances hey look at us Hey, your, coming together as a team right now. Oh, jeez. Uh, <laughs> you did come down. You're in now the window well looking in space. Yeah, now you're looking. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just crouched in there with my microphone. <laughs> I am right in front of a window. I'm like <laughs> That's creepy. Peeking through the blinds right now. <laughs> yeah, so definitely a, a, a more mature Jamie. But that also means that he has slowed down enough to to give us all these great gems about Barristan yeah. and, and reading from the white book. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I love that apparently Barristan was bad A enough that after his dismissal, he took the time to go back to the White Tower <laughs> yes. and write about his dismissal. Yes. <laughs> Even Jamie is like, that guy. Yeah. Awesome. Before he got the heck out of Dodge. And as we know, you know. Yeah. Knocked off all these uh, soldiers and stuff on his way out. He's <laughs> like, oh, my duty, so cool. my duty is to write the ending to my chapter. He's also then Let's would be, see. he would be the only person to ever write his own ending to the king's write his own ending. Chapter, if you, right? Yeah, if you're because everyone else searched till their death. Good point. <laughs> He's like, see, I just defended the king. Yeah, <laughs> but first off, I gotta yeah. take care of something. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, the the Loris and Jamie parallels are pretty amazing. Mm. Oh, and I love how they got into their little dick measuring contest too. <laughs> you were sixteen, huh? Well, no, guess how 15. old I was. Yeah. Uh, they were both, you know, at Jamie at fifteen, so they're both young, extremely talented. Uh-huh. Both for, were from uh, bride the bride side of the ruling family of Westeros. And both with a forbidden love. Yeah, I was going to say the the choices in lover mm-hmm. seen as not acceptable by society. No, yeah. back to the book as well. Um, you know, Selmy's a bit of a dick too. Uh, he writes of himself, pardoned uh, by Robert Baratheon. He writes of Jamie, pardoned for his crime, by Robert Baratheon. Uh, a little bit harsher on Jamie than of himself. Mm. Way to yeah. read, Barristan. Yeah, as if treason wasn't 
punishable by death. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Barrison fighting in a tournament at 10 years old, that's the biggest stick there. Damn. For sure. He was a mystery knight twice. Um, Yeah, makes you appreciate Arson more too. I want to know more about this uh, Lord Stefan's tourney. Did you read the list of people that he defeated? Yeah, who's who? It was crazy long. Mm -hmm. Uh, Robert Baratheon, uh, I think he defeated uh, Rhaegar. He defeated... Mm -hmm. Uh, Lewin Martell, um, yeah, I mean it's it's everybody. It's Oberyn Martell. Uh, yeah, he, he defeated uh, Leighton like, Hightower, John uh, Connington, yeah. Jason Malister, Malister Targaryen was was a great jouster too. Yeah, just a, I want to know more about that turn. Like you hear about the great tourney at Harrenhal all the time. I never heard of this one. It was like the only place I've ever read about it. it sounds amazing. Mm. Uh, I don't have much else for this chapter. Do you guys have anything else you want to bring up? Good. Yep. That good. Ooh, yeah, let's move on to Davos After Dark. Thanks everyone for joining us. It's now time to enter the realm of book spoilers in a segment we like to call Davos After Dark. If you don't want to be spoiled for future books, please smash the device you're using to listen and join us next week, pardon me, in three weeks, for more Storm of Swords, Sansa 6, John 9, Tyrion 10, Danny 6, Jamie 9, just chapters 68 to 72, according to the wiki of Ice and Fire. Also, if you like the musical character introductions throughout the cast, know that these are original compositions written and performed by our very own Matt. You can download these, plus a full-length John song on wearedaposfingers.bandcamp.com or follow the link on our website, daposfingers.com. Also, check out our website for a new section we call Writings. It currently only holds one terrific essay by Matt on the motivations of the Red Wedding conspirators, but uh, hopefully we will grow that in the future. And now it's time for Davos After Dark. Davos After Dark. Yeah. yeah. Boom. Right. Um, Okay, Matt, you had something that we were going to discuss, and I've already forgotten what it was. I should have drawn it down. Thanks oh, for Tywin. asking, Brooke. Right, Tywin. Yeah. Right. I got all I got all cut up in your your Tywin crush <laughs> and making. <laughs> I forgot what it was like the point of that was. <laughs> mm, let me just get my picture of Tywin out so I can look at it while we're talking about this. Oh, the chops! Lion of Lannister. Oh, the chops! <laughs> oh, if you only knew. Okay, so, um, so so Tywin is leading this trial. What are his motivations against his son? Well, first of all, I think that well, – I'll just come out and say what I think first. I think Tywin is trying to keep Tyrion alive. Uh, I think he wants to keep him alive. Not so much because he loves him or something like that, but for, I don't know, a number of other reasons, whether that be that he's just a Lannister and Tywin looks out for Lannisters. Having an or heir. Be, yeah, that, <laughs> like we talked about last episode, I mentioned that there's, you know, we're cr- quickly running out of Lannister heirs. <laughs> They're just dying <laughs> very quickly or committing to the Kingsguard. Uh, or whether he just wants to avoid uh, perhaps being a labeled as a kinslayer although if the trial went you know as a convicted Tyrion, i think that people would be loosely applying that title of kinslayer to tywin he's just the judge mm-hmm. there uh but 
what tipped me off um, was just in thinking, we talked about it a little the last episode, of Tywin for some reason has kept Tyrion alive this whole time. And he had ample opportunities, you know, especially with Tyrion's a baby. You just say, you know, as an effect of his dwarfism, Tyrion died or something like that. And he could have easily ended Tyrion's life, uh, you know, but he, for some reason, kept him alive. And he's even given him pretty good responsibilities. I mean, naming Tyrion as Hand of the King, basically, well, acting Hand of the King, is a pretty big deal. Um, Tywin downplayed it a little bit, but that's still a pretty big deal. Uh, and he's keeping him alive, and he's giving him responsibilities. We saw it, too. It's not out of Tywin's characters to, character to keep Lannisters, who he despises, alive. He did it with his own father. You know, he hated his dad, but he kept him alive. Um, and and I was wondering, you know, would he really turn on Tyrion at this point? And uh, I think he, he might not have. Um, and I think he did want to keep him alive. Again, I don't know specifically for what reason. And uh, I think that perhaps he feels like he can't get Tyrion out of this trial. You know what I mean? The trial has to happen. Tywin can't not proceed with the trial, so he has to have a trial. But he can at least do his best to control the trial and control the outcome of it. And I think maybe that his choice in judges is a hint that he was trying to do that. Hmm. Uh Oberyn Martell and Mace Tyrell come from families that hate each other. They've never gotten along. Well, not never, but they don't get along. They've warred against each other forever. Uh, Oberyn Martell tells the story of the Scorpions and all of that and what that Tyrell guy did, uh, gallivanting through Dorne, sleeping with Lady and stuff like that. Um, and I think maybe Tywin's line of thought was, if I get these two as my judges, they are never going to agree to anything. And so their votes will essentially be canceled out and leave me with the deciding vote. You know, mm -hmm. Tyrell chooses one thing. Oberyn's like, well, I'm not going to decide with you. So no. And they essentially cancel each other out. Tywin gets to pass the verdict uh, of what he wants. And he still has control of the trial. He can still keep Tyrion alive. And I do think that another hint of that is wanting to send him to the wall, that whole offer. Um, and so I, I disagree that he would not let him get to the wall. I think Tywin would let him go to the wall and uh, and would keep him alive that way. That's essentially it. Well, um, so you, go ahead. Just using this logic then, do you think that Tywin had anything to do with fairies letting... Tyrion out of his cell? I thought about that, and I think maybe he would have. Hmm. That backfired. Yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Right? And that would... <laughs> and I, that was what I was thinking. That makes it so much more tragic, that death. That, uh... Hmm. Here, here's, here's what I... Here's, here's where I don't follow the logic. Because I had the same thought about the judges. About, well, just play... Play Martell against... Against Tyrell and a game that's been played you know, over and over again, uh, playing those two against each other uh, to get what you want. I had that thought as well, but I don't think his motives match up with the results. If his motives are to keep Tyrion alive and useful, and maybe even to have an heir around, sending him to the Wall doesn't accomplish having him as useful or having him as an heir. Um, 
helping him escape, not really either. He's going to go, you know, across the sea or whatever. I mean, you could always bring him back maybe in the future, I guess. But it, it doesn't... I don't think the motives line up with the with the results. Well, that's where I'm saying that maybe he was... Maybe it's just to keep him alive. If he really wanted that... So I have a question. So who who's actually who's actually the prosecutor in this trial? It sounds like there isn't one. The crown, or maybe I'll back it up. Who's king right now? I mean, they haven't crowned anybody. So I imagine Tywin's ruling. I guess right. Mm-hmm. So yep. So Tywin's judge, but he's also the one prosecuting. But Cersei gets to choose who the champion is like if Tywin really wanted to make an end of this he could choose a shitty champion and Braum would step in and it would be over well that's what it sounds that's, like that's... that's what I'm saying it doesn't sound mm-hmm. like the judicial system works the same it doesn't seem like there yeah. is a prosecutor right, that's but... operating or under attorneys or anything the assumption like that. that yeah there's like fair representation across the board but there isn't mm-hmm. I guess yeah. but why, there's no why is Cersei going to choose the champion I guess is what I'm asking Maybe it's because she's the accuser. She was screaming the loud, the loudest. Kind of like Liza Aaron in the veil. She's the accuser. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I guess so. As as the king, need... the guy's mom, maybe. I guess it's interesting. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I I don't know. I I, I don't know. I, I have a hard time. I have a hard time believing he's trying to get him to live. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily balk at stand back and let the pieces fall, kind of like what he did with the red wedding, like you said, like organize some shit and see what happens. Take it out of my hands, put it in 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 Martell and 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 uh, Tyrell hands, and let's see what happens. And if he lives, he lives. If not, you know, I won't get in the way. Uh, mm, the only thing I would question, according to my theory on that, is that he did want to keep it in his hands, and that's why he did it. He wants to maintain control. I think what you're saying is it doesn't look like it. He's in control, but he actually is. Maybe. Maybe. But, but I mean, there is a possibility that they do agree. And, in fact, if the mountain Absolutely. weren't named as the champion, they would have agreed. Yeah. Uh, because and I think, I think that, that that might be where uh, Tywin made the offer of the wall is as kind of a plan B option of if this somehow doesn't work out. Yeah. I can still at least keep you alive this way. Again, I don't but think again, there's any what I don't think he gets love. anything out of keeping him alive if he's Exactly. But it, it appears that the fact that he's kept Tyrion alive this long, I, I mean, I'm going back and trying to look at Tywin's past, even back to the way he kept his father alive. You know, it just seems like that for some reason, Tywin is keeping Tyrion around. Well, I don't know that. Yeah, I guess. Is it because of Joanna? Is the last thing he has left that came from Joanna? I don't well, know. I mean, not killing someone is not the same as actively trying to keep them around. You know what mm. I mean? You well, like you said, he could have killed him at any point. He could have killed Jamie at any point too. I, but for a man as unfeeling as Tywin was, who seems to despise Tyrion as much as he does, it's just interesting to me. And that he doesn't squirrel him away. He makes him, you know, acting hand. Yeah. Well, uh, anyway, it's a matter of Tywin using the tools that are available to him, which is something he's mm-hmm. always been very good at. But that—that's the thing to me is it, it seems like any outcome, any outcome here seems like he can't use Tyrion as a tool anymore. 
And so to me, he he feels meh about the whole thing. Hmm. That's where we'll disagree then. Good rebuttals. <laughs> Buttles. 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 Buttles, buttles. <laughs> so yeah, if if a rebuttal is a response, is the first thing the buttle? Yep. Alright. So I think both of you brought up the Davos's Lightbringer theory gets sort of like tipped off in this chapter. Um, with the sword on the painted table. Um, in our notes, it says we've mentioned this theory before. I have no recollection of this. But, we uh... didn't dive too deep on it, I don't think. But it, when okay. we were just talking about the options for Azor High and stuff, I think we... I think it was a dad episode, one of those yeah. big ones where we just covered a lot of dad topics. Yeah, it could have been. Okay. Yeah, so the theory goes that Stannis is Azor Ahai, um, and that... Davos is Lightbringer, so it's not actually a sword, it's a metaphor for a person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that means that Davos has to be shoved through something for the steel <laughs> to be tempered. So oh, I guess that could be yeah. <laughs> that could be interpreted many ways, whether it be shoved through a terrible decision or situation. Yeah. Or just like <laughs> once you turn him. the story, once you turn the Say story it. into a metaphor by making yeah. the sword a person, you can pretty much turn the whole thing into a metaphor, and yeah, yeah. you can go all off, all yeah. over the it place. It could be some crazy wacky sex thing. There's already been a crazy wacky <laughs> sex thing, so let's like not rule out another one. I'm yeah. just, I think it'd be hilarious to read a crazy sex chapter with Davos. So I'm hoping it's that. <laughs> Poor Davos. He really just like that. He's just like hating it the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he'd do it because he's loyal. Yeah. But mm... <laughs> yeah, so do you guys buy into this theory or are you just interested that it exists at all? Well, maybe the latter. Yeah, I'm interested ahead, that Ken. it exists. I, I'd never thought of this before uh, about Stannis being Azor Ahai in the context of uh, Anissa Nissa. Anissa Nissa is don't remember uh nissa nissa is uh, the original azor ahai's wife and he tempers the steel of the last blade that he makes he makes three and he tempers the last one by driving it through his wife's heart and it's it's meant to show sacrifice that azor ahai was willing to sacrifice everything edric storm and everything else (laughs) to uh you know to, to to make this sword that can fend off you know the long night and uh, the others and such, and I I don't know I don't know what Stannis holds in high enough esteem to even qualify as a Nissa Nissa. Not that we've seen in the books, and uh, like law. I don't know. Like, is he going to drive like a sword through a itself. law book? Yeah, that's I mean, like, like the only thing I could think I, of. I can't. Yeah, yeah. the realm. Like, yeah, or if he like. He eventually he he Grammar? uses Davos as an <laughs> instrument. Uses Davos as an instrument to, uh, like, do something unjust. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, that could right. be driving the sword through Nissa Nissa. Right. Mm. Here's 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 a little wrinkle. Maybe, what if? Yes, Davos is Lightbringer. But Stannis is not Azor Ahai. Jon Snow is Azor Ahai. Yeah. And, and um, it's just Lightbringer. 
And who's who's Nissa Nissa then? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Your mom. Wolf. His wolf. Ghost. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. The rest of his family. Yeah. Arya. Bran. Oh, Bran. Bran. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he loves Arya more than Bran, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> He just got real excited there about the I, prospect I, I, of a kid getting stabbed through the chest. Yes, I rubbed wow. my hands together. There's well, some, just because I've said before, right and there. I think maybe you guys have too, is, is of of I get a bad feeling for where Bran's going, and I don't think it's great. Um, and yeah, I would add mm. to that. Jon Snow recognizing that. Mm. Ooh, and Doppel's killing Bran. Oh boy. Yeah. Just just one note on, um, so they're having this discussion around mm. this weirwood table that's yes. all carved out to look like Westeros. Cool table, but uh, it's been brought up that uh, that even Deadwood could be part of the weirwood network. Yeah. Which I feel is like becoming a really like... Important just a, thing. Just a, no, just like a bucket excuse for stuff that happens. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's the t- it's the time travel of this series. Wait, yeah. oh, I, well, I time I traveled and I fixed it all. The painted table is uh, is weirwood. I believe it is. Appar- apparently, I don't remember seeing that. Huh? I think it is. I'm huh. Verifying. Or, yeah, or I'm looking on the wiki. Doesn't say do on the wiki, but maybe. Right. Oh, maybe I made that up. The the in our Davos After Dark notes, I said that the table and the, the White Kingsley, Tower the Kingsguard, with Jamie yeah. that's that's weirwood. Oh, that's the one I'm thinking of. Then never mind, never mind. Oh, I should, <laughs> should I should get those facts but, right before I say them out loud. Thematically, though, I agree with you. It's like oh, <laughs> there's all this weirwood lying around right. everywhere. I well, that could be used. I happened to used. channel a piece of weirwood driftwood as I saw the ship going by and. I know that this was going to happen, so I changed. Yeah, it's yeah, yep. yeah. It's real that convenient. point. It's like okay, okay, yep. Yeah, I'm a little worried about how far it could go. Just like I, I hate when time travel just makes things. Uh, except in Bill and Ted's, which is the best use of uh, that mm. shenanigans to to affect yeah. a movie plot. Um, Parallel universes. That's getting they're getting real carried away in in the Flash, the the television show. Oh my gosh! Yes, it's oh. too many universes. You yep. just like I have scale to watch back. each episode like three times to understand what's happening. Yeah. My goodness, jeez, great yeah, stuff! Still, though. still a great show. Great show. Yeah, yeah. Still need to watch the Kevin Smith directed episode. I have not watched that either. But... You're gonna love it. I just know you'll <laughs> love it. I haven't even finished Daredevil yet. Are you serious? I got like two episodes we can, we can, left. Yeah. I've been. I've been on a real, nobody knows what I'm talking about, but I've been on a real critical role uh, frenzy, and I'm finally caught oh, up. Oh, I know so, what you're talking about, the Dungeons and Dragons show? I fucking love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed, and I finally Everyone loves it. That yeah. and Pokemon, oh my gosh, people settle down. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, have you a, watched all of Critical Role? I have watched all, what is it, 40, 48 episodes now, and I'm finally live, and my wife hates that I'm live, because now on Thursday nights at 8, I want to watch Critical Role live. Uh, instead of just catching them <laughs> late, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, so but now I have time is my point. I'm not ca- I'm not catching up on that anymore. So now I can watch other stuff because I'm finally <laughs> there. It's been like a Attaboy. many month mission. That's impressive. Yeah. That's a lot of 
watching people play Dungeons and Dragons, it's, which uh, honestly <laughs> does it's not more, sound it, like fun. It's more like watching. It's more like watching a comedy and a drama with extremely talented actors. They do mm-hmm. roll dice to make some things happen, and they have battles and stuff. But they're real characters that they are very committed to. They're very talented actors, and they're committed to those characters, and they do an awesome job. And uh, it's better TV than like anything I watch almost. I'm so involved oh, in the characters. That's high praise. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Critical Role. If oh. you have any affinity for Dungeons and Dragons, guys, check it out. It's pretty awesome. Sorry, we're off topic. Anyway, yes, painted uh, the the Weirwood stuff. I'm with you on. Seems like a cop out a little bit, depending on how far he goes with it. I agree. Do we want to say more on the Nissa Nissa Azora High stuff? That about exhausts it for me. Yeah, me too. I, I didn't do a ton I don't of spend more a lot of time it. thinking about it. Yeah, me neither. I guess we can say out loud now that <laughs> Nymeria had a very critical role. Oh. Yeah, brought it back. <laughs> hey, in, in... That's a reach around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. It's a, it's a callback, but whatever. A very satisfying <laughs> reach around. I'll, I'll take reach around. <laughs> a very critical role in in the, I guess, the discovery and creation of Lady Stoneheart. Mm-hmm. I don't really have anything to say on that because I think it'll be better once she finally appears. But I know when I was reading this at the time, I did not see the reanimated corpse of Catelyn Stark like raging across the countryside coming. Mm-hmm. I, saw, yeah. I saw maybe like Dimeria accidentally eating her own mother. <laughs> well, I just saw a tasty. I think the first time I just saw it for what that chapter really paints it to be. A way for Arya to get some closure. Yeah, and 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 then it turns into like this thing. Back open. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think I think the most interesting thing for me will be to see Arya's reaction when she finds out what those actions of pulling her. Oh my gosh! Yeah, the corpse of Stoneheart. Lady Stoneheart and and what that's become. Yeah, right. They'll, that confrontation will have to happen, right? I don't mm-hmm. know. Maybe. And of course, with Arya's connection to the Brotherhood without banners already, mm-hmm. yeah. there's history there too. Yep, it'll yeah, just be really interesting. Think... I have I have no theories about what's going to happen. I just am looking forward to it. Oh, yeah. Well, think of a theory and then think of the exact opposite of that thing, and that's what might happen. That what'll happen? Yeah. Checkpoint. Yeah. Did did anyone from the Brotherhood without banners ever tell Uncat that they had Arya at one point? Not that we know of, but we don't really have any. Insight into that, uh, yeah. Insight into yeah, their coming and goings. We only see Lady Stoneheart through, correct me if I'm wrong, but Brienne and Merritt Frey. Because that could piss right. her the hell off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's there's some theory that Harlan is one of the ones who speaks directly to Lady Stoneheart. Yeah. And, like, yeah. interprets her. So he <laughs> probably wouldn't have told her. But or Or it could end up that they... You know, Arya is so hellbent on revenge and stuff right now that maybe she kind of likes the direction old mom is going. <laughs> and she's so there, like, there's mom, no you're finally cool. Mom, <laughs> you're actually cool now. Well, what I'm what I'm saying is if Kat knew that Arya was alive, her uh-huh. whole trap... I mean, basically what she's doing is running through the Riverlands punishing everyone for being dicks. All right, yeah. <laughs> so, but if she knew that Arya was alive, she might change her tack. And the oh, brother was sorry. The Brotherhood without banners might not want her to change her tack, and so they might be hiding that information from her. 
good point. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I don't think I've ever thought of that before. Mm-hmm. I'd argue that it wouldn't like decrease her need for revenge, but yeah. no, I no, I agree it wouldn't. But she might divert some resources to trying to find Arya somewhere. If she thought, yeah. anyway. Yeah, it's interesting to find out how far gone Stoneheart is. Yes. Yeah. One of the biggest questions I have: like, does she know what she's doing, really? Yeah. Is it like flashes of understanding, or mm-hmm. is it like brains, brains, and then understanding, yeah. and then more brains, or like I don't know. It's the same kind of question I have about like Gregor Clegane and Robert Stone. You know, like how much of Gregor is in him and stuff Robert like Strong. That. Strong, excuse me. Thank you. Yeah. 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 How much? How much? How much is Gregor in there? Mm-hmm. And does it matter? Because Gregor was pretty much just a killing machine anyway. Yeah. What personality did he? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> Gregor, you seem more talkative than than ever before. Uh, <laughs> rape. <laughs> yeah, his answer is just a raping. Yeah. <laughs> that guy's the worst. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about Team John and the the glimmer of it here? Like, I I felt like. Well, reading this chapter, it's obvious that John would be a candidate for Lord Commander, especially with that um, Mr. Eamon endorsement. But uh, it doesn't even come up until Sam gets all sneaky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This yeah. is, I guess, a small facet of the whole Team John theory. Well, yeah, we, we have to, if, if you want to think about what Team John means, I mean... It, being Lord Commander doesn't enter into it, really. I mean, there there would be no need for well, Mr. Yeah, Amon just... to push him toward being yeah. Lord Commander. General well, if anything, it gives... More it gives yeah, having that position of leadership, but also maybe giving John the autonomy to make those decisions that he needs to make, uninhibited by having a superior or something that would stop him, right? Yeah, that's true, but it also gives you other responsibilities besides just absolutely, yeah. Which maybe goes to Brooke's point about just yeah. learning to be a leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The day to day of being the Lord Commander. I mean, I, I don't know that it's there's not sound fun. I don't know there's a ton in this chapter that uh, that lends evidence, but it, it does clarify a lot of the evidence. For anybody that didn't, that wasn't, that wasn't uh, aware of Team John, this might be the mm. moment where you're like, "Yeah, all those guys are really behind him. Strange." You know what I mean? Like <laughs> this is the chapter where you kind of get hit with all this stuff right away. Like, oh yeah, all these guys did just kind of line him up to have success. Mm. Maybe you ask the question why at that point. I don't think there's a ton of new evidence here, but um, right. I don't know, Matt. It's your theory. <laughs> One day I'm going to write it down. One day. <laughs> It'll reside in that writing section next to the Lonely Red Wedding article. <laughs> and we will have peace. Uh, Wait, I'm on a Lord of the Rings kick tonight. You uh, you had a request to get that, uh, to, to read it out, to read it out loud. Oh, that was, yeah, the Red Wedding one. Yeah. yeah. To record it, like kind of a... Oh, just yeah, an audio recording of people to listen to. Yeah. 
Put it's it honestly list. like the only way I listen to any theories. So like unless mm-hmm. Brendan Beefish or Radio Westrose are recording their theories. Yeah, you're not. You're I not just I just I don't have the patience. Yeah. Good to know. Not mm. for Brooke. So other people might be like that too. Yeah, I think it was our friend Tana that uh, asked us. I always said Tana. Oh well. Tana, I think it is Tana. You and I disagree again. <laughs> She's a real person, but pronounce it I'm how you want. You. Say it how we want. Tana? Listen, Tana, Tana, George told us we can say it how we want. Yeah, I, I actually think it is Tana, too. But if you could just shoot us a quick t- tweet and let us know, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, I have I have loaded up on my podcast to listen to their drinking podcast. What is it called? Let me just Westeros Whenverly. Yeah, it looks good. They're great stuff. All You'll men must it. drink. Yeah. All men must drink. Check out Westeros Whateverly, guys. You'll love them. There you go. A lot of fun. Yes. They have a lot of fun together. They are definitely on iTunes. I know that for sure. Dave and Tana. We're going with Tana. You're going with Tana. Yeah. All right. Curse you, Brooke, for crossing me. <laughs> All right. Uh, anything else you guys want to discuss? There's a lot more we could, but we've done had a pretty good session here. All right. We've done good. Um, we're going to wrap this up then. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, this is Brooks signing off, saying Ross Geller should have been killed off in the first season. <laughs> uh. <laughs> You've raised my ire, woman. <laughs> good. That's where I like it. <laughs> wow. I I don't pat myself on the back often, but I, this is I really liked what I came up with for the Braun thing. So I'm going to pat myself on the back with this one. This is Matt signing off saying, help me, Obi-Braun Kenobi. You're my only hope. <laughs> and for my sign-off, I have a Lord of the Rings mashup with A Song of Ice and Fire here. You cannot pass! I'm the watcher on the walls. I am the sword in the darkness... Your sheer numbers will not avail you, horde of free folk. Go back to the shadow. You (laughs) shall not pass. Beautiful. Uh, I can't wait for the stage adaptation of that. I'm going to come see it. You even got the flame of moon part down. I've never understood what he's saying. Flame of moon is what he says. All right. All right. Night, guys. Good night, everybody. Good night. Peace out. Bye. Bye. Hold a reloader, come at me, I'ma rip your soldiers in half Silverback ape, nickel-plated mag Young, rich, and flashy, young bitch I'm nasty, all black clothes to ice Lay on me so classy And every time I... Alright, oh, Inspector Skadget <laughs> uh, Inspector Skadget <laughs> Skadlock Holmes um... Oh man, just there's just so many. Scaddington. Captain's uh, America. <laughs> I mean, go ahead. You Steady can do this all night if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's a great syllable. <laughs> probably could. Uh, Scadno, Scando Calrissian. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Scavater. <laughs>
Uh, okay, I think I'm good. <clears throat> Get it out of our system. I'll, just write, it out. I'll yep. just write down the rest and uh, email you. Later. Yeah, we'll submit. We'll start a, a thread of just names that we can add to as we think of them. I'm tired. I, me too. Yeah. How did your camping trip go? It went really well. Really well, but oh, but we forgot the uh, little nozzle that helps inflate the air mattress, and so uh, <laughs> my bad back feeling a little lightheaded, right? Bad hips were basically <laughs> lying on the ground, which you know people used to lie yeah. in caves, but my hips aren't used to it. You're way too delicate for that. Yeah. Your hips don't lie. Yeah, no, my hips do not <laughs> lie. They're telling a very, very painful truth right now to the rest of me. That that sucks. That that'll ruin your trip. Yeah, Dude. that was one night. I thought maybe you tried to self-inflate. Uh, <laughs> I yeah, you could have slept on your ego, Scad. <laughs> I always sleep on my ego. <laughs> I didn't actually mean that, but you set it up so well. <laughs> I gotta make, gotta make that shot. <laughs> my, consider, my considerable weight is enough that it even flattens out my ego, believe it or not. <laughs> Let's wrap it up. I'm sitting here like a sweaty pretzel. Oh, that's disgusting. I'd be like all soggy put... and like extra salty yeah. because where has this salt. pretzel been to get sweaty? That's the perfect description of me right now. Disgusting. <laughs> Just in so much pain. Okay. Um, I'm sweating because I'm in pain. Okay. Hey, Blood Riders, just a couple tunes on this episode that we wanted to give credit where credit's due for. So the first one, guys, this is a song that I secretly just kind of love. It's called You Are by Lionel Richie. It's from his uh, 1982 album. I wasn't even a twinkle in my mom's eye at the time, or my dad's for that matter. Uh, That album was uh, self-titled, just called Lionel Richie. So I, I secretly like that one. It's a cute song. Uh, the second tune was by my favorite hip-hop artist, and one of my favorite artists of all times, Nas. The song's called Hero. It features Carrie Hilson on the uh, chorus vocals there, and that's from his album Untitled. Fun fact, that album is called Untitled because he wanted to title it uh, the N-word, but the actual N-word, and the, the record studio wouldn't let him do it, or the record company wouldn't let him do it. And uh, so in an act of solidarity or whatever, he didn't give the album a title at all. So it's technically called Untitled. But that's a, that's a wonderful song by one of the true legends of hip-hop, Nas. Uh, check them out. We'll catch you guys next time. Thanks for listening. See ya! Mm-hmm.